I was the uh, pilot in command of Super 6-4, which was one of the Black Hawks, and I was actually leading an element of aircraft, and, and that means my responsibility is to fly, in this case, four aircraft into the target area and put troops on the ground. You know, the mission itself was to capture a warlord and some of his senior people. We'd been doing that for a couple of months when the Black Hawk Down mission occurred on October 3rd. You know, there wasn't a person involved in that mission who didn't put their life on the line that day for someone or to support the mission. And I think that's a real important message. Uh, you know, we, we get caught up in, in a lot of other things, but that, that selflessness and that commitment to each other and that commitment to the mission, I think, is, a, is at the core of this story. The manifestation of it for me is Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon, the Medal of Honor recipients, who, who came to our crash site. They insisted that they be dropped off, and they were, and that's why I'm here today. I went to survival school, and in survival school, they, they, you go without eating for three days, and they slap you around a little bit. And then, for me, having experienced it for real in the real world, it's not even close. In my mind, I died. When we crashed, I was knocked unconscious, and, and I think psychologically, that was the end for me. It was a violent crash. It, it, it was, you know, you could argue not survivable by looking at it. So you, you sort of have this rebirth, where now you have this second life, you thought your life was over, uh, and, and what do you do with it? I, I have tried to uh, raise the bar on myself, elevate my game, do things that I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't had that experience. I've done a lot of things that, you know, I, 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 I would say stray outside the lines for me, but I did them because I realized I've already had a second chance. I'm not going to have a third, so I'm going to take full advantage of what's been offered to me. From a military perspective, this mission was a success. Uh, that mission that day was a success. We captured the people we were after. It, you know, if you define success from military perspective as casualties, the casualties on the other side far outnumbered ours. But we lost people. And, and anytime we lose people, we have such a high standard here with our military in the United States that any loss whatsoever is, is viewed upon with great speculation. But in the big picture, that's the price we're going to pay. I mean, if we're going to tr go try to fight ISIS, if we're going to go try to, to straighten out places like Afghanistan, people are going to die. And if we don't accept that going in, we shouldn't go. Because that is the world that we live in. It's dangerous. These missions are hard. And uh, there will be a price to pay. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a great episode for you guys this week. On with me is retired Chief Warrant Officer 4, Gregory Coker. Um, he retired as an A86 Little Bird pilot out of the 160th uh, Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And he's also the author of Death Waits in the Dark, Six Guns Don't Miss. Uh, Greg, how's it going? Hey, John. It's going great, man. I'm blessed. And thanks for having me on. I'm honored. Yeah, anytime I get to talk about life and jobs and family or friends i yeah i i love it thanks so um you know i've been following you for a while uh you have a phenomenal book uh you, oh, you're you. a guy with a good reputation um oh really <laughs> <laughs> surprising no um and then so before we get into everything uh, can we talk about Blades for Brothers and, and what that is? Oh, yeah. You bet. Yes, sir. So I started making knives about eight months ago. 
and I've got several, several buddies that have, they're veterans, combat vets, and they've been making knives for years. And I know several folks in the industry and they've been after me for years. Like, Greg, dude, you got to start making knives, you know, well, now I know why they do it because I'm one, I'm having a whole lot of fun Two, my neurologist said it's helping my brain because I'm using, you know, math, geometry, thought processes, uh, metallurgy, you know, it just goes on and on. And it, and yeah, I'm just having fun. It's therapy for me and it's therapy for them. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start giving back. So I'm going to start a nonprofit. And I started it on 30 November last year, man. And my goal is to bring a vet in, you know, a day or two. And this is near target and show them how to make a knife. You know, I've already had one guy. Yeah, I've had one guy in already. And I just happen to have a single burner forge and a one inch grinder. I just gave it to him. I mean, because he was like, oh, man, I love this. And now he's going crazy making knives like all of us do, you know. But, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I want to get fellas together and families and, and gals but to fellowship and and to learn a craft because uh, truly it has really, really helped me a bunch. And my far target or strategic plan is one, to start getting the word out there that we're doing this because I don't think anybody's doing it. And two, I want to form chapters all throughout the country. This is going to take me a while, I assume. So a vet doesn't have to, you know, travel to Texas or travel, you know, wherever if they're not a local guy. So I can identify those folks out there that are willing to bring a vet in and, and, you know, and, and the easy way to do it is to forge a, a railroad spike. They make cool knives or to do uh, stock removal, you know, just it, it's a day deal. But see, so yeah, that's that's my mission now. And then to raise money and give back to the community, veterans, first responders and their families, just like I do with my book. But I put a group of veterans together back in August last year and contacted them. I said, hey, what do you guys think about? making some knives and the big knife show is called blade show. It's in Atlanta in June. And I said, we'll make some knives. We'll auction them and then donate all the proceeds. And they're like, Oh yeah, man, that's cool. So I've got 12, there's 12 of us and we're making knives. Yeah. And it's just, it's fun. The guys are excited about it, you know, and meet new people and, and they get to, you know, kind of show what they're doing or what they're thinking. Each in each individual knife is just is different to that person. You know, when they go through their thought process and their planning. Yeah, it's just like it's like being in the military. So, I mean, you just I can't just throw some steel in the forge and you know wish it to come out to something. You have to think about it. And so yeah, I started Blades for Brothers, and we'll uh, yeah we'll get going. And I've made four knives and I made a billet. I was shot down. We'll probably get into this later, but I was shot down in Iraq. I flew eight sixes, like you said, little birds. And 
I had some pieces and parts came into my possession, like the mini gun barrels, a piece of the rotor blade, a piece of the T-tail, the vertical. So I used the mini gun barrel steel and this billet that I made these four knives. Plus, I had some World Trade Center steel that I added into it. And I made this really cool 1,600-layer Damascus, all four knives. So I'll auction those off in June at Blade Show and then donate all the proceeds. You know, probably I'm looking at TF Dagger, of course, Night Stalker Foundation, Three Rangers Foundation. So depending on how much they bring and industry folks are telling me, and, and I understand this, that it's the right place, right person, right time. But they, they're telling me they could bring fifty to $75,000 each. And I, I started out, I was like, Lord, I hope I can bring in five grand, you know, for these four nights. <laughs> I could give this buddy away. And I'm like, what? Because I, I don't have a clue about this industry, man. I do not. But I ask a lot of questions. And the folks in this industry are awesome. They want to help you. So I, I don't think there's going to be any issues, you know, about about forming these chapters across the across the nation. And uh, I'd also like to get some high-end bladesmiths like John Horgan, you know, Bill Harsey, Steve Schwartz or Steve Woods. I mean, guys have been doing this forever and ever and, you know, get them and, and pay for them to come and we can go to them and teach guys how to do this. Teach me. So there's just, yeah, I'm about 20 years behind. <laughs> I wish I'd have started this back then, but I mean, I get, I just have all kind of ideas. Yeah. It's just cool. That's Blade. Yeah. That's, that's awesome stuff. Brothers.com. And there's books, Blades, and Swag. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's awesome stuff. I mean, you, you said you registered in November or September? Um, November. Okay, but, but you've been making knives for longer than that, right? No, physically nine months now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I feel like I've seen you making them before that. I mean, maybe I'm just screwing up my timeline, but. No, sir. Well, I started in August. Yeah, August last year. And I got sick. I had my knee replaced. And then I got an infection. Mm. So I was down for five months. Oh, no. So I got back in. the. I built me a little shop here at the house. My buddy, Jared Johnson, lives about 20 miles away. He got me started doing this. And he's been he's been making blades for not quite two years, STA blades, and then I I I bought a heat treat oven and I was moving it in my little shop here one day and the thing the table folded up and this thing's heavy, so I just you know instinct I I reached out to catch it because it's a very expensive machine and I didn't want it hitting the concrete. I, when I grabbed it for my distal bicep tendon so now oh no yeah i'm down for another four months so yeah it's just touch and go but i mean yeah i'm making knives maybe nine months yeah about nine months okay yeah i've been kind of like following your 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 blade journey there like you post sort of updates online um, yes. yeah yeah it's pretty cool thank you yeah it's cool yeah yeah come out and we'll beat some steel 
Yeah, it, it looks cool. And, and I've never, um, like, I own a couple blades that were made by different knife makers. Uh, and some people are, like, known in the industry. One guy, not so much. But uh, it's cool, you know, that you could kind of use them as everyday tools or self-defense or whatever. Yeah, they're tools, um, man. That's what yeah. I tell everybody. They're like, wow, this thing's beautiful. I'm going to put it in my gun safe. No, no, I didn't make it for that. I mean, yeah, you need to use it, yeah. It's a tool, man. But yeah, I make chef knives and fighters and yeah, yeah. I just uh, I'm always getting ideas. So. Yeah, and I mean even until you know the, the sort of modern era, swords and blades were like the trademark weapon of of warriors for the most yeah. part. You know, so absolutely um, thousands of years. Yeah, uh, you know, all across the world, different cultures and stuff, and um. Different skills, different minerals, you know, mm-hmm. live. It's interesting. Yeah. They, you know, different designs, or, you know, what the, the sort of symmetry of the blades are different. And, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, Thank all you. All right. So let's start with, uh, you know, where you come from and, and what was your life like growing up? Where did I come from? My mama. <laughs> so my father was in the air force he was stationed out at edwards air force base in lompoc california so i was born in out there in santa maria california and then dad got transferred to chanute air force base which is rantoul central illinois that's where my mother was from and it's pretty cool story they met at a he was out there at school at Chanute Air Force Base in Illinois one time, and they met at a um, little dance deal, you know, and started writing, got married, and had me. And then they divorced in 68, and I stayed there, and we moved to back home to central Illinois, stayed there until I was 17. And I was just, you know, typical kid in the 60s and 70s, watching TV, the Vietnam War, the helicopter war, and yeah, man, playing BB gun wars and throwing dirt clods at each other and riding bikes and horses without a helmet, <laughs> you know, and and uh, yeah, we were just typical kids, man, chasing critters in the woods, and I ran a trap line, and uh, I just loved to be outdoors, played football, wrestled. Played baseball, worked on a ranch. Yeah. Yep. It's a good time. Nice. And uh, did you always know that you wanted to fly helicopters? I think that was probably came in about in the early 70s, you know, because the, the Vietnam War was all that's, you know, we had what, like three channels back then. And, you know, that that's what was on, on the news. I just had an infatuation with with flight being, you know, my dad was in the Air Force, so around planes and jets and bombers and all kind of stuff. But the helicopters, you know, I was just like, holy cow, man, they can just hover that thing and land right there at that spot. So I actually drew pictures, and, yeah, just with pencils and sketches of all kind of every helicopter that was in Vietnam, the Loach, the Cobra, the Huey, you know, so... Nice. That's where it started. And yeah, I always had a, a draw to flight. Yeah, as far back as I can remember as a kid. My uncle worked at Cape Kennedy for NASA too, so I'd always get the 
uh, he'd always send me the Apollo stickers and you know that stuff for nice him and I Apollo missions. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, and the uh, the pilots in Vietnam. I mean, th- those guys were doing incredible things and um, man they're a breed apart yeah and like you you hear like the stories of um oh my gosh they scare me <laughs> yeah like they're you know they're in you know deep in enemy territory and and uh the guys on the ground are just getting uh shot up and uh, and the helicopters are just hovering over the spot you know yep. waiting for guys to get on and and the helicopters are getting shredded yeah yes sir yeah some brave brave men absolutely I think the craziest ones, though, were the Loach guys. Hmm. You know, the 086 Little Bird, which is an MD-500, is what we still fly today in the 160th. But, yeah, my job is to go fly down this trail and draw fire so the Cobra can tip over and put some bitty gutter rockets on him. I was like, oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah, and I, I read all the books, you know, Low Level Hell and, uh, Hugh Mills, he's a very, very famous loach pilot from Vietnam, and uh, I know him pretty well. But yeah, it's it's crazy. Those guys carried him around on bowling ball bags, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so that helicopter you mentioned was that like the uh, the sort of first iteration of the Little Birds, or yes, or Mister Hughes Hughes aircraft. He designed and developed that helicopter in 1957, I believe. Mm. 1957. And I've read several stories about him and the development of it. He wanted an airframe that was going to be safe. And if it rolled, you know, everything would just break off of it. And then the crew would be safe in their crew compartment, in their seats. But if you look at the helicopter, it looked take off the main rotor and the, and the tail boom, it looks like an egg, you know, yeah. an egg roll, 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 roll. So that, yeah, and they, you know, they nicknamed us the killer eggs and, you know, <laughs> some crazy stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I will say it's the world's greatest helicopter ever. I mean, developed in 57 and still flying today in special operations and, you know, other places all over the world. It's a very versatile aircraft, and it's very, very survivable if you do, you know, have a situation or you crash or get shot down or whatever. Yeah. So what was the, your process uh, into the Army, and um, did you know about the 160th prior to joining? No. No, sir. No. They, they were formed in 1981 for the second hostage rescue attempt in Iran mm-hmm. and along with Delta and of course President Reagan was elected so the Iranians released everybody but out from that rose TF-160 and man they were I mean even my when I first got there it was it was still very classified yeah yep until the movie Black Hawk Down came out and then everybody was just like, whoa, we're talking about, because we couldn't even say the D word or, you know, Delta. <laughs> right. Or, you know, TF-160. Uh, don't say that. But we talked in colors. So each each unit had a color like the 160th. We were TF-Brown, Rangers, TF-Red. 
mm. uh, Delta TF Green. So, yeah. Right, and the, and the seals were blue, probably. Yes, sir. Yeah, blue. Yep. Yeah. So there is a transition period, and and I think as you know, as technology grew in eighties, nineties, you know, I mean, it, it's just a matter of time. People, the enemy's not stupid; they can figure stuff out. Right. Yes, sir. But no, I didn't have a clue. I was actually, I was, I was. I enlisted in the Army, and then I was stationed. I went to Fort Campbell to the 101st, 1st Brigade, 327th Infantry, Rifleman. And we had just come out of the field there at Fort Campbell. We were sitting in the back, cleaning weapons. I look up, man, here comes four little black helicopters. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, whoa, who are those dudes, you know? And old big sergeant said, Coker, get your tell them back to work quit talking with those things they they don't exist that's like well sergeant right there they don't exist do push-ups <laughs> I was like, right with that. you know i was a private so. but yeah and then the more i asked and they're like yeah there's there's a group of guys that you know kind of do that stuff <laughs> but nobody else knew anything about them either that was in 86 yeah yes sir Okay, and you're, but you were flying the whole, the entire time that you were in the army. No, I was an enlisted soldier for three years. Okay. Yeah. Oh no way. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and that's what my dad recommended, and he's like, "Hey, you know," and, and I was at a point in my life. I was I was a lot older. I was 25 when I enlisted. You know, I was like grandpa in basic training, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and. Pop, he, you know, he's like, hey, I, I think you should enlist. Because I, I knew I wanted to fly. And I'd been to the Marines, been in the Navy, been in the Air Force. Well, you have to have a four-year degree to fly. But oh, the Army, the Army has high school to flight school. You don't mm. need it. And you, you enter the warrant officer program. Uh, I see. Yep. So that's, you know, and yeah, and. When I was in flight school, we had two guys. They were, I mean, literally 18 years old, had graduated high school, and later that summer found themselves at Fort Rucker, Alabama, flying, you know, Army helicopters. And I was like, gosh, dog, man, oh, wow. that's crazy. Yeah. We'd chuckle at them because once you get to a certain point, like over halfway through, you can leave, you know, you can leave Fort Rucker. And of course, we'd go off and and uh, they couldn't go because they weren't old enough to drink beer. <laughs> so oh, that's funny. They, they'd be, they, I'm not kidding. They'd be riding their skateboards, man. And they're both <laughs> West Coast. <laughs> so I'm like, well, there you have it. You know, here we are trying to learn to be killing machines. And those poor lads are riding their skateboards out in the park. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys Sunday. And they'd be like, you suck. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So that's interesting. So, uh, so when you go to flight school, do you first have to go to a, a warrant officer program before you can go or how does that work? Correct. Yeah. And there's, there's different like special forces. They have warrant officers. They're, they're like an XO on an A team. Hmm. So, you know, once a, once an, an NCO, non-commissioned officer or sergeant gets to a certain point, he can, it's like, Hey, 
sir, I want to go Bill Warren. You know, I'd, I'd like to be a team XO. And then there's there's Intel warrants and motor warrants, but aviation warrants are, you know, they're the whole of Army Aviation and the Warrant Officer Corps. I mean, there's a bunch of us who used to be. But yes, it's I think I believe it was seven weeks. It was seven or eight weeks. You go through Warren Officer Candidate School, Walks, Walk S, and yeah, they run you through the ringer and interrogate you and <laughs> hassle you. Yeah. And so even uh, like if if you're a pilot in the in the sort of big army. Uh, you still have a security clearance and you still yep. have to go to like SEER school and stuff like that? Yeah, they do now. They didn't back then. Yep, there's different levels of SEER school. I don't know what level. They they don't go through the level that we do, I don't think. I used to have a buddy that taught down there and he said, no, it's, it wasn't anything like we went through. So I don't know, but still it's good. SEER school is one of the best schools I ever attended in my career in the army. Okay. So, um, so what helicopter were you flying initially? So I tracked guns. So my first assignment was AH one Cobras in the Republic of Korea. And we fill out a dream sheet, you know, when you're in flight school, and I put Cobras, Cobras, Cobras. <laughs> I just wanted to, I like blowing stuff up, shooting stuff, you know. So, yeah, I tracked Cobras. The The Apache was very, very new at that time. And they they still hadn't transitioned out of, out of the Cobra, out of the AH-1. But it was a really cool aircraft. And it was good for me as a, as a young aviator to go to Korea because, one, the one, it's a real world mission, still is today. You know, they got we got folks up on the border. And two is that you get several terrains. So you get to fly in mountains, you get to fly over water, you get to fly in the snow and the monsoons. And yeah, it's just it's like drinking from a fire hose, learning to fly, learning your craft in Korea. Yeah, it was. I always look back and say, "Hey, man, it was it was good for me." You know, most guys they just hate it because it's an unaccompanied tour. You go for a year, so you know you get to miss mama and the kids if you got them, or mom and dad or whatever the case. But yeah, it was good for me. And we flew a bunch. I was in the five seventeen cab there at Camp Casey for about ten and a half months. And how long were you in the army at that point? Uh, over, let's see, three, four, almost five years. Hmm, okay. Less okay. time, almost three flight schools a year. Korea's a year, so yeah, almost five years. But I so came in all thinking that I kind of jumped over that. But uh, one, I wanted to go back to school, so GI Bill was a tool. The army was a tool for me, and. Man, I got in and I just, and I told my dad, you know, I said, man, I really like this. It's like, hey, you know, I said, well, if I get accepted for flight school, yeah, that'd be good. And if I hadn't, if I had a backup plan, a contingency that I was going to go to the Ranger Regiment, 
Yeah. I'm like, hey, okay. if you're going to be here, you might as well be with the best, right? So, yeah, that was my contingency. Actually, my commander there at Fort Campbell in 1st Brigade was Colonel Ralph Hagler, and he was the commander of 275, 2nd Battalion, 75th Rangers, when they jumped into Grenada. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was Lieutenant Colonel Hagler then. But, yeah, so I, I had him, he was like, Coker, <laughs> you need to go be a ranger if you don't get to high school. I said, okay, that, sir. Yeah, great, great legendary ranger, Ralph Hagler. So I actually knew a guy, or I, I know a guy who was a, a SEAL, and then he went to the 160th. Um, I, f- I forgot what airframe he was flying, but. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, is that kind of common, or, or something you've seen, or, you know, over your career, where guys are in the elite sort of special ops or, or infantry, and then they go to fly? Yes, sir. Not many. I mean, let's see. I knew of one seal that came from ST six or whatever they're called nowadays, Deb Group. Yeah. And then there were two guys from Delta. And a bunch of Rangers, because I wrote letters of recommendation for, I don't know, man, it was like 26, 27 of those guys. Oh, no way. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. We And when the, you know, when they go to the board and they used to, and they had a letter from a Night Stalker, man, that was, that was, they couldn't make the decision whether they got accepted or not. But yeah, it was good, man. I had a hundred percent go on all my guys. <laughs> nice. They all got picked up, but that's it. And it's good for the one sixtieth for the regiment because we spend a eighteen to twenty four months. Once you get there, you get to a company, you get your airframe, and because we work with so many different entities, it just it takes months and months to learn, you know, how they operate. Well, these guys, they already know that. Because they're in Ranger Regiment or in Delta. Right, right. You understand what I'm saying? That they already know the scheme maneuver and how they, you know, how they operate. Whereas, you know, a guy never served in the infantry, well, you know, you got to teach them everything because the, mm. the ground scheme maneuver is critical. It's critical. And, uh, yeah, they have to learn it. The only way to do that is to go work and train with them. So it takes several months. Over, yeah, almost two years to get a guy up to fully mission-qualified aviator. That means that that pilot is ready to go to combat. Mm, well, that, that makes sense, but that, that's so interesting. So so basically, you have to train as an infantryman, understand you know how groups and people are moving on the ground yes. in order to better understand how to utilize you know the airframe. Yes, your skills, you bet. Yeah, like the gun guys for us, the AH-6 Little Birds. I mean, we were precision close air support or pre-assault fires or, you know, and then once the ground force gets on the ground, then we provide overwatch or call for fire. You know, we have a squirter, a dude running off target. We'd go chase them down and kill them, you know. So, that, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot going on, man. A lot going on. So the the A eight six is the uh, it's it's the same physical frame as the M eight six, but it just has the guns on it, right? Correct. Essentially, different. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, MH6 has, they have planks. So these, they kind of, they're aluminum boards that are on the side of the MH6 Little Bird. And that's where the ground force, they ride and put, mm. you know, six guys on there, three on each side or four total, two on each side, depending on how big they are. But yeah, and that's, and the, the aircraft are interchangeable. And say like, hey, we need, or a company, the MH6 guys, like, hey, we need a we need an aircraft. We got one hard broke. Well, they could take an AH, pull the plank, pull the guns, put planks. I mean, in just short time, now they've got a little bird. We need a gun bird, you know? So we could go steal one from them. <laughs> Go steal one from them. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't oh, think that's a- No, that's not. But yeah, so it's a very versatile aircraft. Very versatile. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Okay, so uh, you finished your tour in Korea, and then uh, you know what was the next step for you? I had orders to return to Fort Campbell and get an Apache transition. Because now I kind of knew more about the 160th, and you know, I I, I felt that okay, I, I need to fly, fly, fly. I need night vision goggle time, and I need to shoot. So at the time, then Lieutenant Colonel Cody, which is later General Cody, Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, was my commander first of the 101st, and flew Apaches for almost three years. Yeah, man, it we were, man, it, it was just again, it was just a great unit. I've been blessed by the Lord that, you know, I had great leaders, I had great commanders, great NCOs, great soldiers, in every unit I've ever been in. And nice, yeah, I was just so then you know I was back at Campbell, so now you know I'm like, hey, well, who's those black helicopters? <laughs> you know. Why is that Blackhawk black? Why is that Chinook black? You know, who are these dudes? And, and I actually met a couple guys that were in B Company. I used to cowboy and rodeo and rope. And I was actually standing, I lived on post. I was standing outside my quarters at a roping dummy because I had a, a rodeo coming up that weekend. So I was roping. Oh, nice. And there's big dually stops. Guy jumps out. He's like, hey, I'm Jerry Harp. You know, who are you? And Jerry was in Beco in the 160th, flew AHs, and we became very, very close friends. And, uh, but yeah, one of their former commanders, Colonel Mark Jones. Yeah, man, those were the early days. But we did, a, we did train quite a bit because of the administration that was in office then. <laughs> oh, that makes us better warriors. Yeah. So okay. So then, uh, so you said you did three years flying Apaches. Yeah, almost three. Yes, sir. And so, uh, in that three years, um, are you are you trying or or having to? I think you, you mentioned it a second ago, but basically, you know, check the boxes for sure. the experience you need to go to the one sixtieth. You bet. Yeah, I did. I talked to. Of course, the guys that are in the unit, and they're like, hey, you need a 1,000 hours of night vision goggles. Or no, correction. a 1,000 hours in the aircraft and 100 hours of night vision goggle time to even assess. Wow. I was like, oh, crap. And I had, the, I had double the goggle hours because we flew them a bunch in Korea. And then in the 101st, 
front seaters flew with NVGs, Colonel Cody implemented that in the Apache community, which was, you know, it's all about safety because you have to wear that monocle over your eye, which uses FLIR. And, you know, maybe the FLIR is not so good. So the front seer could flip his MBGs down his goggles and fly the aircraft or, you know, whatever, navigate. So, yeah, we flew, we flew a lot of MBGs. And I, when I assessed, I, I actually only had like 600 and, I don't know, 80 hours total flight time, but I had almost 200 hours of MBG in, oh, I see. in three short years. So they, yes, yeah, I was the first guy they ever took, what they said, that had less than a thousand hours, but they, they oh, took wow. a chance on me. <laughs> yeah. Because I had double the night vision goggles flying time than the average guy that comes in or assesses. And so then the, the Apaches, there, it's, there's two guys in it, right? Yes. Uh, one guy's focused on the, the weapon system, and the other one is actually flying the aircraft? Correct. Yeah, the fellow in the front seat is the gunner, and that's his whole mission. So manage the Hellfire system, rockets, and, of course, the 30 mic mic chain gun. And the guy in the back seat's the pilot, and his primary focus is flying the aircraft, but he has access to the gun and the rockets. Yeah. So say they're flying along the route doing a deep attack, something pops up and the backseater can, the gun, he can slew the gun to his helmet sight. So all he has to do is look at that target right or left down and then pull the trigger, man. And it's going to put, you know, good suppressive fires and anything like that. And a, a situation where the pilot is actually firing is, is that like, you know, he, he sees someone that they didn't expect to see, essentially, and he's just doing it to be quick, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Say they take, they start taking fire. Well, he can, he's got the best situation awareness because he's flying, he's outside. The gunner is in and out of his optics, you know, the heads down display and, and navigating and monitoring radios. And, you know, it's just, it's just a division of duties for situational awareness. Hmm. Yeah, but that's hmm. how we do it. I don't know how units do it nowadays. So. Yeah, it was a and, great aircraft, great airframe. Had a lot of fun flying it. Again, had great, great warrant soldiers, NCOs, leaders, officers. Yeah. And uh, what year was it that you went to selection for the 160th? 93. I think it was April or April of 93 when I went to my assessment. Okay. And um, so then like generally, how long is the, the selection process? A week. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's pretty intense. All the special operations assessments are very, very intense. I mean, some guys just quit <laughs> like, hey, this right. for me, you know, but yeah, yeah, it was, I was excited. I was like, man, I got this far. Don't don't mess this up, Coke. <laughs> right, but it's it's kind of interesting from like the the little bit that I do know of it. Like, I, you know, I think it's a it's a ton of physical training in addition to the the uh, extensive flight training, right? Yes, yes, yeah. You go through quite a bit of testing, 
And yes, I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, but yeah, I mean, you just, you don't know. And they, probably still today, you just don't know. But you'll have to, pilots will have to do a navigation route and plan it. And yeah, man, it was, whew, it smoked me. There's no sleep. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating stuff. So, okay, so then you, you go through the selection. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you can talk about this part, but when you're done, do you say, like, oh, I, I want to go to this airframe, or do they say, we need guys to fly this? Like, how does that work? Yeah, again, you get a dream sheet. And historically, so guys that came from guns, so Cobras, Apaches, or guys in the scout track that flew 58s, they would naturally go to A or B company because we already had, you know, if you got to start over and teach a guy how to shoot and weapon systems, man, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Mm, okay. So that historically, you know, the natural movement was for that person to go to either A company or to B company. So the gun company. And then they're got, you know, if you flew Blackhawks, you're going to go Blackhawks, Chinooks, Chinooks. But yeah, they, you know, they, I told them I'd fly hot air balloons. That's what they wanted me to do. I did it in my board. They're going to throw me out, man. I said, hey, sir. And they ask you there, too. It's your board. That's the final thing you do. You go in, you're all dressed up in your class A and you're sweating bullets. And yeah, man, you spend about three hours in there getting smashed and jerked around. And because they know everything you do, everything you say, and it comes back. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then they tell you to leave and you have to go stand out there. I don't know how long I was out there. And they call you back in, you go report. To the, re the regimental commander is usually the president of the board, Colonel 06. And yeah, they tell you if you're a go or no-go. And if you're a no-go, they either tell you, don't ever submit paperwork again, or, hey, go get some more time and come back. Yeah. And then guys will have to go through the entire selection once again? or Yep. Sure do. Okay. Sure do. Okay, so then... So you said you were there in April of 93, or, or that's when you started. Yeah. Um, were guys talking about Mogadishu uh, during selection, like after no, that happened? That, that hadn't even happened yet. Okay. Yeah, they didn't deploy down to Somalia until, I think it was August of 93. Right, in the summer. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. But no, man, nobody ever talked about any missions or that was just, that's taboo. Yeah. Okay, right, and and it wasn't like today where you know you're getting instant updates of news on you know straight to your phone and stuff like that. Right, right. Okay, yeah. All we had were beepers back in the day. There were no cell phones. There, <laughs> your beeper went off. You found a payphone. Always had quarters or dimes or whatever it cost back then. And call back. Hey, what's up? Yeah, and it's funny when I because I, when I was a kid, I remember thinking that beepers were so cool. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we were always taught only drug dealers are wearing beepers. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I'm not a drug dealer. But. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, you, you finish and then you get in. And um, 
so once you get in, do you initially then you have to continue training on that uh, on that helicopter? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You report to what's called Green Platoon. So that's the training company for the regiment. And uh, yeah, you'll spend the first, I think it's about a month, you, you're learning to navigate to standard. So every night you get routes and, you know, there may be just one dude or there might be four dudes in your class. There's no, you know, there's no telling. And so you plan your mission. The next night you fly that mission. You do that every night for, gosh, I don't remember now, four or six weeks. And then if you make it through there, then you go on to some more advanced training. First of all, you do three weeks. That's right. You do three weeks. You do CQB. You do firearms training. You do land navigation. You know, some above average skills than a regular army dude, you know, would have to do. Yeah. And then you start flying. I'd forgot about that. Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. Okay. So then um, when we did our, our interview for the article uh, for Strike Source, um, you, you had mentioned about guys starting out on the, or uh, I don't know what phase of, of the, uh, the sort of uh, in processing into the unit, mm-hmm. but guys will get to the shooting point and they, they won't be able to shoot next to our guys on the ground. It's, you know, too close for them. You know, there's a mental block. It's whatever's going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is that point happening after they pass and after they're into the unit already? No. Generally, they'll identify that before they get to a company. You know, okay. You know. And for for the age for the gun guys, our our green platoon lasts almost a year. Yeah, eight to I think it's eight to twelve months. It's the longest class because we have to go learn to shoot the way the one sixty shoots. <laughs> it's not even not even close to any other service how they shoot. Yeah, we shoot close, and we have to be very very accurate with all of our weapon systems. And that takes a lot of time. Again, 18 to 24 months to get a guy up to speed. And most of that is shooting, teaching a guy to shoot. Because our, you know what our sighting system is in that helicopter? No. You don't know, really? Just your, your eyeballs? Yes, and a grease pencil mark on the windshield. No way. Yes, sir. That's wow. a fact. Grease pencil march. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dudes. They're like, golly, man, you put a rocket right through that window. It's like, Roger that. That's where you wanted it. How do you know what? <laughs> I said, this grease pencil mark right here. You know, and everybody. I mean, some of them are very, you know, extravagant. They got stadia off of them. You know, some dudes just have a big black circle. It's like two, two inches in diameter or a little bitty. You know, it just depends on the guy and. uh but you got to figure out <clears throat> because you only have one sight. So a gun guy has to, he has to figure out how he's sitting. Cause if you move your head left or right, well, that's going to throw your sighting system off because you don't have a rear sight. Does that make sense? Yes. And then up and down, 
know, again, you don't have a rear sight. So you have to figure out, and it takes you months and months and months of shooting. We go to the range three, three times, three, four times a week to shoot. And, <clears throat> but you have to, to, to learn it. It's a very perishable skill. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great, I mean, we tested all kind of crazy stuff, man. But like Uncle Fred Horsley said, there's no faster computer than the human brain. Right. Stick tar, grease pencil. <laughs> Watch that, Fred. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's thinking about it, like to to fly at a, you know, the highest standard really in the world. Yes. Uh, and then to fly fire and maneuver and and not hit your guys hit the you know the bad guys like it's it's a really a crazy thing if you sit down and think about it oh, yeah yeah not we'd have i'd bring out i was a professional shooter too three gun and epsic mm. and i'd bring guys out to do training for us like mike Boyd, benny cooley uh robbie latham i mean all world champion shooters and and I'd always chuckle because I'd take them to the range. I'm like, hey, man, you want to go to the range? Because they, you know, the AHs would be shooting. We'd be, we'd be up at the, on the ground doing, you know, M4 and pistol training, CQB. And, man, they would watch us shoot, and they're like, dudes are putting rockets in the port on the top of the tank. Right Jeez. through the, right through the port hole. And they'd be like, okay. What in the world are you guys doing? And I said, come on, let's go down here. And I'd show them. I said, that grease pencil mark. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh. Are you <laughs> kidding me? But dude, no. I mean, Biko, they're the best shooters on the planet, bar none. But we shoot a lot. <laughs> you have to. I mean, I shot 15 meters in front of friendlies in combat. Yeah, that's crazy. That's close dude but they were yeah. pretty overrun it was on haditha dam we shot a company size element trying to overtake the ranger blocking position position on the west side of haditha and was that during the uh the initial battle to take the dam yes that was in the Mar march 30 i think oh three 2003 yeah okay so they, i they, if I remember, they, they took the dam and then there was a counterattack, basically? Oh, yeah, for like six days. Okay, right, right, yeah. yeah. I said, hey, the ranger commander would get up to H1, which is an airfield about, I don't know, 20 miles west of the dam. It was like, okay, fellas, we're going to take take hold the dam, then we're going to be relieved in 24 hours by an armor unit. <laughs> and six days later, we were like, where's this armor unit? <laughs> Because <laughs> all we had were, you know, light infantry, rangers of light infantry, but we did hold the high ground and we did have two AH six little brothers. So that's yeah, it's a very it's a very robust package. Okay, so you, you make it all the way through, you're in the unit now. Um Yes sir. Where were you on September eleventh, two thousand one? <laughs> I was on the treadmill at the gym, getting my workout in. I had a range that day, so I went into went into the gym, had a workout. I was, I think, I was the only guy in there on the in the treadmill part. They're on Campbell, and the guy that ran the gym, he was a, a retired SEAL, 
and mm. man, he came he came walking really fast. I saw him turn a corner and he was ashen white, and I was like, "What in the world?" So I kind of slowed down, and he's and he reaches up. He says, "Greg, you need to see this." And he turned the TV on, and tire one was burning, and I was like, "What in the world is going on?" You know, and as an aviator. And it was like a plane, crap, you know, ran into the World Trade Center. I'm like, it's clear blue, 22, beautiful day, you know, no obstruction. How does an airplane not miss, <laughs> you know, the World Trade Center towers? Right. And then it wasn't 30 seconds later, man, Tower 2 got smacked. I mean, I watched it on TV. I was like, oh, gosh. And then my beeper went off. And when the tower, the second one got hit, did you know right away that that was uh, some kind of uh, attack? Or oh yeah, there was yeah. no doubt in my mind, man. No doubt in my mind. Yeah, I was like, oh lord. I had no clue about the Pentagon, Flight ninety three, and all the other stuff that was going on. And I jumped in the car, raced to the raced to the unit out there at Camel Arm Airfield. <clears throat> yeah so uh, I forget the exact timeline but I don't remember if it was a month later or, or something close to that but um, a CIA team went in there and then there was a uh, a team from 5th Special Forces Group was in there and then eventually uh, a team us uh, hmm, I want to say a squadron of Delta was in there with some British Special Forces attached to them um, yeah, T, we were TF Sword in the south, mm. and then fifth group, special forces group, were in the north. So our plan was to, you know, we they'd move south and we'd move north and catch them in the middle and kill all of them. Yeah. So w were you deployed in two thousand one to Afghanistan? Yes, yes, sir, I was. Okay. Yeah, ac there actually we had boots on the ground at the end of September of 01 and yeah we we started going in the country every night to set the conditions and hunting bin laden and muhammad and yeah i mean our orders from the sink from the president was find fix and kill taliban and al-qaeda and that's what we did and we were done in nine weeks that's a fact when you think okay. about it and put it in perspective, a very small special forces group did what the Russians couldn't do in eight years yeah. in nine weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty crazy. I think uh, for the, the battle at Tora Bora. Oh, yeah. I forget the... Um, the uh, the actual statistics, but I, I think the uh, the amount of bombs that they dropped there was like <laughs> crazy high, like astronomical. Um, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, so can you can you talk about like so? Because I know in those days, um, you know, there weren't huge American bases set up yet, and and no, um, there was we had no intel in the Middle East right. because the former administration. The Clintons removed, cut all the funding. So, you know, they shut everything down. So they had the intel agencies had to start all over again from right. scratch. 
Yeah. Right. So they were basically showing up with uh, suitcases full of cash trying to, <laughs> yes, you know. Yes, we heard. It's like, all righty then. Yeah, that, that had to just, that had to have been tough because you know, no points contact, no agents, no nothing. And, right. you know, here's a couple couple American dudes with suitcases walking into these camps and say, hey, we're your friends. Here's some money. Yeah. Where's the Taliban? <laughs> Where's Karzai? Where's Bin Laden? <laughs> Where's Muhammad? Yeah. Right. I mean, they they worked their tails off, man, and very, very dangerous. It was Indian country. The whole Yeah, for sure. The whole country. So was that deployment uh, to Afghanistan for you guys, for the uh the AH six guys, mm-hmm. was that like very different from the rest of your deployments? No, not really. It was, I mean, that that's the standard we train to. And I mean, we're, we're always going somewhere, doing something. They call it TDY, temporary duty, you know, to go train in mountains, over water and cities. And yeah, man, it was, you're always training, always. Right. It's tough. It didn't force some guys. You know, mama doesn't like it or whatever the case, and they leave. So, but yeah, it was it was pretty cool, man. It was just history. history. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, are you able to maybe share um, an experience of like a, an actual mission there, or, or maybe sure. what your first time was like in actual combat? Yeah, the, the ages hadn't been put in the country yet we're still trying to figure things out you know and we were actually living at Masira Island which is a very small island off the coast of Oman Mm, Yeah. and what was ironic about it was that we were doing a brief one night and I said hey fellas it was like let's see that was 01 so 20 years ago today Colonel Beckwith and Delta Force we're right here getting ready to go rescue the hostages. Oh, our, wow. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, our first official was 19 October 2003. It was Objective Rhino mm. and Objective Gecko. Gecko was Muhammad's ranch out kind of southwest of Kandahar. And then Rhino was the Ranger Objective they did a combat jump into an airfield to take right. the airfield and then set up parks for the helicopters that launched and did the raid. And I was the FSO fire support officer for TF sword. And I was in an AC one thirty overhead, but I had oh, nice. for a couple of weeks yeah, I'd go out every night with the AC-130 guys to set the conditions. We'd find targets. I wrecked the routes that the helicopters were going to take, you know, up to the objective. And yeah, man, it was just, it was a busy time. It was busy for sure. That's uh, pretty cool. Those, um, those AC-130s, they were doing a ton of work uh, oh, throughout the, the wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I had fixed wing and, you know, and like, like hit night in Kandahar at Rhino. Gosh, I can't. It's in my book. 
I think I had like 86 aircraft stacked overhead. Wow. To start the show. <laughs> start the show. Yeah. Yes, sir. I it was I figured it up, but again, it's in the book. It's I've had too many head injuries. I can't remember stuff. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was oh my gosh, man. It was I was like, holy cow, I'm glad I'm an American. Yeah, seriously. Because it was B1s, B2s, F14s, F15s, F16s, F18s, tornadoes. The Brits were in on it. AC-130s. We had three three AC-130s over the objective. Yeah, man, I was just like. Another cool thing is on the gunship, we came home empty every night. Every night. And and now was fighting Taliban and Al Qaeda. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, we had we'd have pre-planned targets or targets, mostly targets of opportunity. Yep. You could tell where the camps were. You know, if there were armored vehicles and air defense, and you know that was that was one of our primary missions to find, fix, and identify air defense. So ZSU twenty three fours heavy machine guns, you know, things like that. And we'd destroy them with the AC-130 so the assault force could get into the target safely. And all the uh, the air defense stuff that they had, was that like Soviet-era Soviet yeah. stuff? Yes, sir. It was all Soviet stuff. But it, you know, it worked. I mean, yeah, they'd shoot at, shoot at the noise every night, I guess. Right, just shoot wherever they, they hear, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're several thousand feet overhead. I mean, there's no way they can hit us. We can see them and hit them. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you mentioned Task Force Sword. Uh, were you uh, working with uh, sort of other nations' uh, special ops units at that point? No, we were, I mean, we were the show. You know, it was uh, it was one sixtieth Rangers and Delta. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I mean, we were scrambling, doing target packages, just trying to figure things out because <laughs> we had right. no intel. So then we started, you know, sending guys, sending aircraft helos in, the little birds, the H and MHs, you know, to go. I just go hunt. Yeah. Yeah, it was old school stuff, man. They go hunting. Right. Okay. So then, and how long were you in Afghanistan after you know that first trip? We came home December. I think the first or second week of December, because General Daly was the task force commander, two star, and he said, "All right, fellas." And they had, you know, by by then, mid first or mid December, we had intel. The I think the Marines were programmed to start coming in. And going to Kandahar and establish a forward operating base. And, you know, and General Daly says, we got to get home and plan for the next one. <laughs> we're like, what do you mean plan for the next one? He's like, we're going to Iraq, boys. We're like, all right. Mm, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we got home and started planning for that. You know? Yes, sir. So, one thing, uh, you know, I've done in previous episodes, speaking to guys who were, um, you know, different spec ops units or infantry, um, and then in particular for guys who were in 
before 9-11 versus, uh, you know, them telling me how things were after uh, the towers fell and, and things really picked up in terms of combat. Um, oh, yeah. A lot of those guys, you know, the, they would, the way they explained it was like the, uh, the differences at the unit was like day and night. Yes. Uh, was there major changes for you guys as well in terms of like how you operate and what you focused on? Or Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Four Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriot survival food kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called 4Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to 4 and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's 4 Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today. No, no. We conduct business as usual. I mean, that's, okay. We train the way we fight. I mean, we when we go train, we live fire. We shoot with humans running around on the ground at night. And Yeah, I mean, it was... Yeah, it wasn't training, but that's that's what we prepared to do. Go fight America's wars. Right. Okay. All right. So then, um, so you guys leave. You go. You go home, and you're you know continue to train, and you're planning for um, for Iraq. Yes. Um, so were you part of the initial invasion, or? Yes. Yeah. I, again, I was. You know, I, I was just blessed, I guess, and for for Afghanistan and for Iraq was one of the in, initial planners for fire support. Yeah, and uh, lots and lots of planning, lots and lots of training, preparing for the invasion in Iraq. We got on, on the ground in Saudi Arabia on 20 i think it was 26 feb 03 yeah around there okay and you guys when when the invasion began you guys launched from there as well yes okay we were actually the first first ones to fire first shots again (laughs) oh no it's dead in iraq yeah so our d-day was 19 march 03 whereas the the massive force, their D-Day was 21 March. But again, we as classic, you know, special operations, we went in to set the conditions, do armed reconnaissance, you know, find that information and pass it along. And the AH side, our mission was to fix, find, and destroy, you know, again, artillery, 
any air defense, communications, camps, whatever we could find. So, yeah, we we stayed busy, busy, busy for those two, two 19th and 20th. And then we were down on the night of the 21st. And I never will forget that. We we're all sitting out on the fly, flight line that night in lawn chairs and watching all the Tomahawk missiles. <laughs> I mean, hundreds of them, man. Wow. Fly right overhead. And of course, fighters and bombers. And we were like, oh, Lord. And then you could start seeing the flashes off in the distance, 100 miles away or whatever. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Okay, so, uh, you know, it, it's kind of in the name, right? Night Stalkers, um, you guys prefer to fly at night and operate at night, and, and that's part, part of why, you know, the, uh, the requirement is high for the amount of hours under night vision. Correct. Um, yeah. That's but, why we're called Night Stalkers, not Day Stalkers. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you guys do, you also fly during the day if it's necessary. Um, yes. Yeah. It, it just it depends on the target and you know how bad we need that individual or target. And yeah, I mean, we've had to do some day missions. We didn't like it, but we did it anyway because those were our orders. Right. So the the Haditha Dam uh, situation was that day and night fighting, or it was just night for us. Okay. And pretty much the Rangers, yes, sir. Because we held the high ground. You got, you got to understand this dam. When I first heard dam, you know, I'm like, typical dam. Okay, I get it. Like, this thing's almost five miles long. And it's mm. like 300 feet tall. So it was, it was the major water source for along the, I think the Tigris or Euphrates to Baghdad. Yeah. And it was a it was an electrical electrical generating dam too. Mm. Yeah, there there's wires everywhere, man. If I can remember correctly, I, I think there was a fear that Saddam would try and blow up the dam. Yeah, that was well. Yeah, we didn't know for sure, but. The Iraqis thought we were coming to blow it up, and we thought the Iraqis were going to come and blow it up. <laughs> so, you know, all it could have been was a telephone call, man. <laughs> be like, hey, we're, we're not going to blow up the dam. But if it had been blown, the, the city of Haditha was just a couple miles downstream, you know, downriver. And it would have, gosh, man, it would have wiped everything out. Right. Would, you know, they, Baghdad wouldn't have had any water or electricity or nothing so yeah it was it was the most important strategic target in the war and it was also the biggest battle of the iraqi war yeah yeah i think there was a hundred hundred thirty eight of us rangers few delta guys and our two ahs <laughs> that was it man so Against were you guys like were your helicopters you know, at the dam, and then whenever they needed support, you just get in and start shooting, or were you were you come in from a different location? No, we were at H one. Another airfield is about I don't know, eighteen miles to the west. Okay. The Rangers had done a combat jump into there to seize and hold the 
that runway, that airfield, so we could come in and land and you know, they could bring in C 17s or C 130s or whatever. And uh, so we lived there and then just flew to the dam every evening and then flew back home as the sun was coming up. Yes, sir. All right. So you were shot down in Iraq. Um, yes. Now, ironically, 19 March 2004. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So one year after the invasion, basically, or, yeah. or after you guys started. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. So, um, so can you tell us about that? Like, you know, what was, you know, what was going on and, and then the, the entire experience? Sure. It, the, I think the insurgency had just started or was getting ready to start and early Oh four, you know, because they were all coming to fight the Americans. That's where we were. And Al Qaeda wanted to, to get it on. So, we were busy, busy, busy. We had targets, mostly Ramadi, Fallujah, and then Amaria, which is south. And if you connect those three cities with a line, it forms a triangle. Mm. And somebody nicked it, the Devil's Triangle, because yeah, had one, they had seven helicopters shot down in that triangle, a surface-to-air missile a man pad or, you know, an IR seeker. So somebody was that knew what they're doing was running around down there, shooting down American helicopters. And, but yeah, we, we were hitting, I don't know, four five, six targets a night, every night. Wow. Sure. Yep. Had been since we got into Baghdad. So we were hunting the deck 55, of course, Saddam and his entourage and, two sons we killed them and yeah yeah so we'd done a hit in Fallujah that night into early morning 19th so the 18th and 19th and we'd gain intel you know off that target and then go to the next target hey this dude you're looking for is right here okay let's go there let's go hit that so we hit it you know and it just continued to compound and, you know, that, that's one of our missions to gain intel and then find, fix the enemy and go get them. So we got intel off of a target, said, hey, dude, dude we're looking for is going to be at this house in Fallujah at 10 o'clock in the morning. We're like, ooh, yeesh, <laughs> you know, ooh, daytime. So <clears throat> the Sergeant Major said, hey, you guys – you just stay. We had us a little farp out east of Fallujah where we'd hang out and it was safe, you know. Of course, we had rangers there pulling security, Delta guys. But he said, you guys stay here. We'll just drive in and uh, go get this dude. We're like, huh, Roger that. He said, but, you know, if we need you, we'll call you. Okay. Because, you know, it was maybe two-minute flight where we needed to go. So, they hit that target, got the dude, and there's another guy down in Amaria that we were looking for. So Sergeant Major comes back and he told the, the AH guys, it's like, hey, you guys head to the house. We were living at Baghdad International Airport there, the west side in that big hangar at the time. And 
So we'll just we'll drive down there and kill that guy, and then you know we'll see you later this evening for more missions. Okay, Roger that. We fly back to Baghdad or two AHs, and hadn't been there long. I think I'd changed into PT gear and, or going to get chow or something. And guy ran out of talk and said, "Hey, the the recce team is in a tick." Troops in contact. We're like, oh crap! So we all made the decision. We ran to the AHs, jumped in, and took off. I think it was like a twelve or fourteen minute flight to where they were. Got on station, linked up with them, and they had done everything they needed to do, pretty much. And we we did a couple, we did a couple fire missions, uh, dudes. Bad guys were trying to kind of flank in the low ground, and you know we we'd pick them up, see them, shoot them. And the troop commander he called on the radio and says, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna exfil in one minute, one mic." We're like, "Whoo!" And I mean, the whole flight there, I was like, "Man, this is not good," because <laughs> it was like thirteen hundred, you know, Iraqi time, and. I mean, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I remember these things. And I told my co-pilot, and in BCO, whoever's not flying has your M4 up and ready to engage targets, either suppress or, you know, we're, we're very good shooters with our M4s out of that helicopter. We design programs to, you know, get an accurate shot out of a moving object. I, I told him, I says, hey, you see anything, man, you, you rip them up. <laughs> you, you shoot them. Yep. Roger that. Um, so I came around and flew real low over the guys and, you know, kind of did thumbs up and I was in a climbing right hand turn headed to the Southwest and this giant explosion. That's all I remember. Just a giant explosion. The aircraft shuddered, and the fireball went right by my right shoulder. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh. And it got real quiet because it was an SA-16, and those are very highly technologically advanced Soviet weapon system to shoot down aircraft. It's a heat seeker, and it's, it's shoulder-fired, so one, you know, one dude can carry it to a roof and shoot it. And... I was like, oh, shit, man. And I knew that, you know, the engine was out and I entered auto rotation. And two of the guys in the ground force had seen the shot. It came from a two-story building right on the edge of town. And they immediately began to suppress 50s and 240Gs and all kind of stuff. And I got really busy in that cockpit. You know, getting the aircraft under control, and I'm an instructor pilot, so we do we do a lot of auto rotations, and that's the procedure in a helicopter that if the engine quits, you enter a maneuver called an auto rotation. It's it's like doing a a landing without any power, mm. but there are some critical events that have to take place, or you just fall out of the sky and crash into the earth. The one is to get Gets collected down. That's what that's what controls the rotor pitch for up and down or for lift. 
and then your cyclic direction in a helicopter. So cyclic forward, you go forward, backwards, right, left, so on. And then I remember scanning, and and the second that missile hit, my my world went to slow motion. I mean, mm. it's like that's the best way I can explain it. Like an old movie reel, it was frame by frame by frame. And I understand the physiological effects under stress or duress. You know, we start dumping adrenaline, right. or all these great chemicals <laughs> that your body has. And yeah, so I, I just went to work. I kept, I kept worrying about my rotor because I was heavy. And I had a tailwind, about 20 knot tailwind. I was in the worst condition I could have been in to perform an auto rotation. As you always, any aircraft you want to be into the wind, because that, that relative wind helps the lift on the wings of an airplane or the rotor system of a helicopter. But I had no time, man. I was at 165 feet, and we they put it in a simulator later on. It, it was 3.4 seconds from the time the missile hit to I touched down on Earth. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... I didn't even have time to get out of radio call. I mean, it, it was just, again, it was about my priority was the aircraft and my crew and the co-pilot. It was, it was his first combat tour. Bless his heart. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and two in the, in the desert, it's just dirt, you know, in that country. But aviators will use vertical objects to judge your distance your height above the ground so we can perform certain maneuvers. Well, there was nothing, you know, there weren't any trees and weren't houses or poles or nothing. So it's very difficult. Luckily we have a radar altimeter, which is very accurate. It gives us feet above the ground. So I kept looking at it because the plan in my head was, okay, I don't know the condition of the surface. So I'm going to perform a very, a very steep deceleration in the helicopter. And that's, that starts at 75 feet above the ground. And it's to bleed that airspeed off. So mm. I entered a, a very aggressive decel. And then I just held it, kept glancing at the radar altimeter, checking the rotor. And the rotor got really high. So I pulled in a little bit more collective to bring, it was like, I think 105 RPM or 105%. And I wanted it at about 95 to 96%. And if you let it get too high, the rotor head will just spin off the helicopter. Mm, so okay. that would be a bad thing. So I was like, okay, I got some collective in. I'm looking right between my feet, right between the pedals as to where I'm going to land because it's, it's, it's a near vertical descent in that helicopter. It has a low inertia rotor system. And I mean, you fall out of the sky like a grease crowbar. So I, again, I saw my radar altimeter as a 20 feet. So I leveled, leveled the helicopter at 20 feet. And again, think, and again, it's frame by frame. By, it was just so weird. But so I, I decided in that 3.4 seconds, that I was just going to hold there. I was going to pull a little bit of initial. That's just to get those rotor blades to bite the air and to slow your vertical 
ascent down. And then at 15 feet, 10 to 15 feet, you pull the whole collective to cushion your landing. It's like mm. landing without power. You know? So that's what I did. I leveled and I just, I pulled everything I had. And my co-pilot says, man, that was the smoothest landing I think I've ever been in. Cause they're, they can be very catastrophic. Right. You're falling out of the sky at 2,600 feet per minute. Well, you just don't have a whole lot of time. And yeah, I remember touching down. I was like, all right, man, we got this, you know, of course, all the bells and whistles are going off on the helicopter telling me that the engine's out and the oil pressure's low. Well, there wasn't any because that missile hit it. <laughs> you know, I was like, right. God, I wish I could turn that stuff off, man. And, uh, and we slid. So we touched down and again, that, that it's just dust, man. It's like fine powder dirt, you know, well, all that from that rotor wash, all that dust and engulfed the helicopter inside the cockpit. Cause we don't, we don't have doors on the helicopter ever. And so I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to hold everything here. I'll start easing the collective down as per the emergency procedure for engine failure. And what that does, it gets the weight on those skids and helps stop you, you know, because I didn't, again, I didn't know the condition of the, of the ground. So I wanted to minimize my ground run and we slid about 35 feet and went down a bit of a slope. And I just, I, I saw this hours later when we came back to the crash site and went down a a bit of a slope into some soft dirt and the skids stuck in the dirt. And guess what happens? It goes back to physics. <laughs> so, mm. so we just start rolling end over end. I remember the rotor blades hitting the ground and, and just chaos, man. Just, yeah. And I, I truly to this in my heart, I believe it knocked us out. Well, I, I guarantee it did me because my head hit the, I was in the right seat. My head hit the door frame and it cracked my helmet. I hit Oof. it. So we rolled three times end over end and came to rest inverted. And uh, I came to and I was just like, holy smokes, man. I was like, hey, I'm alive. Thank you, God. <laughs> hey, just want yeah, to Okay. That's all I ask. I'm not asking for a miracle. And I'm, I'm a, you know, strong Christian man. And, but I was like, okay, man, I need to go through that check. You know, you check your toes, your feet, your legs. You know, you raise your arms. Is everything working? You know, what's broken? And so I did that very quickly. I looked over at my co-pilot. He was just kind of hanging there in the harness because we we're upside down, you know, but we're strapped in. But I kept hearing this popping noise. I'm like, man, that, that sounds like popcorn. That's just weird. Did it hit me? <laughs> Oh, that's ammo cooking off. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, man. Not good. But I wasn't worried about that so much as I was the rockets. I didn't know what those rockets would do. And I had 17 pounders on board. What would they do when they caught on fire or started mm. up? You know, you know, they didn't do anything. They just burned up. Wow. Okay. It was good. So I put my hand over on the co-pilot's shoulder. And I, I said, hey, 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 I was hollering at him. I said, 
you okay? And he kind of nodded his head, but he had blood all over his face. And I was like, oh, crap, man. Did he get hit? Did he did his seat harness not lock? And he, the little bird's famous for the seat, for the harness, not the lock. And the, the pilot smacks, smacks the cyclic with his teeth. <laughs> like, oh, man. Hope he didn't. Anyway, he did. And he, he bit through his tongue. Oh, shit. Crash. And uh, I said, hey, meet me over here. And I point, you know, three o'clock. Because in a gunbird, you don't want to get to the front front of it in case a rocket goes off or a bullet, you know, has a discharge. Then it would be bad. It would hit you. So we always you go to the three or nine o'clock. But at that point, I mean, I didn't know where I was upside down. I had no clue what direction I was heading. Right. I knew I was in outside of Amaria and we were in a ship pop full of trouble and the helicopter was on fire and uh yeah so I, I grabbed my rifle my m4 and i crawled out the front and i stood up and i took a step and i fell down i stood up took a step and i fell down i was like okay is my leg broken so i just sat i just sat there i pulled my pant legs up you know checked my legs moved them again and the docs explained that i had received a stinger in my L spine, which kind of mm. her leg go to sleep. Football players get it quite often. And uh from hitting hard. So I finally got up and and the, the other guys in the in the AH said, Man, we you know, they heard it. They flipped around real quick, saw the whole thing, and uh, they they even told her like, dude, that was a nice landing. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> Like Neil Armstrong, I only had to do it once. <laughs> and he landed on the moon. I was like, I only got to do this once, Lord. And uh, so they, and I do remember hearing them shooting and, you know, the Delta guys and the Rangers. And I'm like, man. And then my next thought was like, oh, crap, Black Hawk down. You know, little bird down. Here we are, middle of the day, black helicopter shot down in Indian territory. And then that, that triangle Fallujah, Ramadi, Amaria. I mean, it was it was bad. It was the wild, wild west, man. It was bad, bad place. All these Al Qaeda were, you know, that's where they lived and that's where they were hanging out. And uh, so I remember hearing them shoot. And then he said they came back to us and they're like, okay, we're going to land because they could see the helicopter just, it was fully engulfed in fire and flames. So we're going to land, see if they're alive. And then they saw me crawl out. So they went and got back in the fight. And then he had to leave right after that because he's almost out of gas. And uh, so I get out. I make a couple passes. My first priority was secure, you know, secure the crash site, secure my co-pilot and keep us safe. And then I was like, oh, crap, I need my I need my ruck. We all carried little rucks behind the seat. We got our night vision in there. And you know, water, ammo, grenades, all kind of stuff. Jolly Ranchers, uh, toilet paper, you know, the essentials. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I kind of walked over to it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. But the whole cargo area where that rucksack was was just engulfed in fire. And <clears throat> so I said, okay, I'll just kind of make another sweep around. I kept looking for the co-pilot. I, I went back. I said, hey, you got to get out right now, man. You got to get out. He kind of shook his head. He was still hanging in his harness. 
Right? Mm. Later, I said, what in the Sam Hill were you doing? <laughs> I was listening to the radio. They were talking about us. And I said, oh, no shit. Oh, man. I said, don't ever do that again. You scared the crap out of me. <laughs> so I didn't, you know, a few more seconds went by. And I mean, this helicopter is burning, buddy. Ammo's cooking off. <clears throat> Big gunfight to the east of us, about 300 meters. And, of course, I kept, I kept worrying. I said, somebody's going to come up here, and I'm going to shoot them and kill them, you know. But I, I looked back, and no co-pilot, so I, I crawled over there. I got on my belly, and I crawled in the helicopter, and I reached up, and I grabbed the latch, you know, on his, on his harness, and I pulled it, and he fell down mm. because we were upside down. Right. And uh, he kind of, his head, he, Popped his head up. He kind of looked at me, you know, this crazy eyes. I said, oh, dude, we got to go. But when I got in there to him, the, the fire was rolling around his left arm because he was in the left seat. It didn't burn him. But, I mean, that's – I was like, oh, my gosh, man. you I've got to get you out of here. And I just jerked him out of the helicopter, man. I just – I don't know how i do it, how I did it. And, uh, yeah, I just jerked him out on top of me, and I got another – kind of some more traction and pushed and jerked him out on top of me again and then kind of rolled over and we were out of the helicopter. And uh, I said, hey, there was a little defilade to the east, about 50 meters. I said, can you make it over there? And I kind of started to assess him. You know, where is he hurt? and Why has he got blood on his face? And then he showed me his tongue. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, don't do that again. I mean, he bit halfway through it. Uh, ooh, that's going to hurt. So I put him in a prone looking east. And I got on a knee. I was looking north. I said, if you hear anything, if you see anything, you know, sing out. Let's get both sets of eyes. I said, man, we've just, we've been through a shit storm, dude. And we're, you know, I don't think we're quite right. And, uh, so he kind of nodded his head. Then I hear a truck. I'm like, oh, crap, here we go. So I tell him, I said, hey, I got a truck my 12 o'clock. And I kind of scooted around a little bit to the right towards him. And I said, hey, let's put both guns on it. Let's talk about it. Because I, I did not want to shoot a friendly, you know, because we were kind of jacked up. And, and he's, you know, he kind of shook his head again. And so I hear the truck stop. And then I see this dude running and I see a cap and I was like, ah, then I see a face and a beard. And then I said, oh, I know him. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and he's just stopped in mid, just midair stopped and stood there and looked at us. And months later, I saw him at the chow hall one day and I said, hey, man, what, what were you doing? You know, you stopped. He goes, dude, I was like. How in the world did those rangers get there so fast? <laughs> we wore, you know, desert camo and non-standard stuff. But I said, no, man. And he's like, crap, that's gravy. I was like, because he thought we were dead. Mm, We'd right. up in the helicopter. I said, no, man, we ain't dead. But he grabbed us and hugged us. He asked me, he says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go find that son of a bitch and kill him. He goes, get in the truck. Let's go. So... Yeah, we spent the next six hours in a gunfight. And then uh, they called for Air Force CSAR to come pick us up, but they wouldn't do it. They said it was too risky. 
And the troop commander looked at me and he's like, I, this is unbelievable, Greg. And I said, yeah. I said, in their motto, so others may live. I said, oh. <laughs> Boy, they kind of dumped on us today. And I know it wasn't the, at the pilot level. It was, you know, way up the chain. Right. I'm sure. Said, and, I, and I told our guys, I said, do not come in here. I got on the radio. But, dude, they had loaded. They said it looked like the Clampets, man. They had like 12 helicopters. Rangers were hanging off of them. Delta Force was hanging off of them because they're thinking the same thing, you know, Mogadishu all over again. And uh, I told them, do not come in here. Do not. I said, man, I think it's a trap. <laughs> they're like, Roger that. I said, we're with the ground force. We're, you know, we're good. Doc was working on us and he was shoving needles in both of us and pills down our throats and <laughs> taking vitals. And I was like, dude, get away from me, man. Just <laughs> leave me alone. And, uh, but I had this, you know, this moment we're in the hump. There were three Humvees gun trucks up armored gun trucks. And then two panders or big six wheeled armored vehicles that Delta used to use. And, and so we're online hauling ass across this desert and engaging the buildings, the bill is a two-story building. The building where the shot came from, <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm in the back right seat with the sergeant major and my co-pilot's on, on my left side in the back seat. And I'm hanging out the window, you know, shooting the targets, and, and I just stopped and I, I was like, wow, man, this is kind of surreal, you know? Yeah. Right, and I look left, and you. You're probably too young to remember, but when I was a kid, there was a show called The Rat Patrol. Mm. And it was about, that about Vietnam? British Special Operations in World War II and after. Mm. And they had these little gun jeeps, you know, but it just, it, it reminded me of Rat Patrol, man. I was like, okay, enough of that. Get back to work. And uh, then we got stuck. We were headed into the Ville. Because I told him, I said, hey, I want to clear that building and I want to I want to see if there's any evidence, you know, any boxes or dunnage or man, there there was nothing there. So I had a theory about it. I talk about it in my book, but I won't ruin it for the listeners. But, uh, yeah, we got stuck in the mud under fire. <laughs> so we we bail out. I got a ranger in the he's in the up gun. Uh, Jeremy Smith, Ranger Smith, and he's getting it on. And the pander peels off under fire and backs up to us and pops the rear door open, runs out with a, uh, a big old strap, you know, hooks it to us, <laughs> starts pulling us out of the mud. We're putting down covering fire. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And, uh, yeah, we fought our way through there and, Went back to the crash site. To, I said, hey, I want to go back to the crash site and sketch, you know, the best I can for any accident investigation. And uh, the 82nd had gotten there. This was crap four and a half hours later. But they were there, secured the site. And I wanted to make sure all our sensitive items, i.e. miniguns, you know, any crypto radio stuff, you know, just whatever. I want to make sure it had been destroyed or or we got it. And uh yeah, so it was it was pretty crazy. And then we loaded up and they're like, hey, we're going back. You guys ready? They're like, uh yeah. <laughs> so we take off, 
we fight our way through Fallujah, on the road to Ramadi, through Ramadi to our MSS, our mission support site up in Northeast Ramadi. Jeez. I was like, oh my gosh. And we pulled up. This was 2,200 hours. Yeah, so we've been we've been on the ground fighting since 1.30. That after so almost nine hours. Plus, we've been up all night, you know, on missions. But that's how we operate. You just got wow. to do it. And uh, we pulled through the gate of the MSS. And I remember seeing all the three docs, I mean, doctors. And we had a medic, man. I mean, we had the best medics on the planet, bar none. And he was taking good care of us and kind of giving updates back to the rear. And we pulled through the gate. And I was just like, okay, we're, we're safe. And I, he stopped. I said, hey, I said, you got to stop, man. And I opened the door and I started throwing up. Mm. And that's, you know, telltale sign of concussion. Right. And I started vomiting. And I just, I just rolled out of the back of the truck, man, onto the ground. And I, and I guess it was just that, you know, that sense of safety. Right. You know, I was safe and the adrenaline started to push out of me. And man, adrenaline's the best drug on the planet, bar none. You know, that's why we do it, I guess. Get that adrenaline rush. Right. But uh, yeah, one of our Blackhawks was sitting there waiting on us and they loaded us up, flew back to the combat hospital in Baghdad. And yeah, the rest was history. But for me, I had broken my neck, L-spine. I blew out both my knees. And the docs told me that that whoever's feet are on the pedals in a helicopter crash like that, yeah, it just, it just blows your knees out because of the impact. And then both shoulders dislocated in a severe guy. And I've had 41 surgeries, and I have 47 pieces of titanium in my body. Yes, Jeez. we have good doctors. <laughs> yep, man, that's tough. And and how about your uh, your co pilot? Was, was he? Yeah, yeah, his back was messed up. He was just messed up. He was pretty messed up. But he eventually, I think it was about a year later, he exited the army and went on okay. things. Yes, sir. Yeah, I know he had L spine injury and some head injury and. Yeah. Yes, sir. So then, okay, so uh, like uh, over, you know, how long was your recovery period after the crash? Oh, gosh, it was months and months. But I I sat down with the docs and I said, hey, and they, they, they prioritized it and we took care of immediate things like L-spine and one of my knees and a shoulder. And I said, look, I want to, I want to, you know, PT, physical therapy. And then, and our, and our docs love us and they trust us. And, you know, they're not going to ask us, we're going to tell them, Hey doc, I'm good to go. Or, Hey doc, I am not good to go. And they, you know, that was a professional courtesy for both sides. And I told ours, I mean, I sat down with all three of them. I says, I'm ready to go back <laughs> right now. They're like, no, you're not going back right now, Greg. <laughs> uh, we have some work to do. So I'd get surgeries and then 
you know, I'd be back because our rotations were about a hundred days, hundred days there, hundred days back, hundred days there, hundred days back. Hmm. So that gave me enough time to heal up and I'd go deploy, man. I think I did like five more deployments after that. Yeah. I went, and, I did a ground deployment with Delta 0405 and I worked with the 22nd SAS on that tour, helped them out. Yeah. And then the, I got back up, got back to flying and came back to Iraq, man, shooting bad guys. <laughs> and were all your deployments after that, were they all back to Iraq? Yes, sir. Yeah. I had 10 deployments to Iraq and one deployment to Afghanistan. So 11 total. Uh, so, but even though that you, you know, the majority of your deployments were to Iraq, there was still 160th guys in Afghanistan as well, right? Yes. Yeah. They're, man, we're all over the world. Right. But that's, you know, that's where the focus was. Yes, sir. We were worldwide globetrotters. Man, that's pretty crazy. I, I know a guy um, who survived a, a helicopter crash, but he was a, a, a Green Beret. Oh, Man, okay. And uh, yeah, I forgot what what helicopter he was in, but um, I think it it killed like one or two of the partner force guys he was with. Oh no! Yeah, Dog. but and it's crazy because uh, his teammate, who was a guy who I I had done podcasts with and stuff, and and he was talking about how when they were leaving. Uh, his teammates stayed at the base, and then I, I don't know, you know, whatever the setup was, the the, the opposite uh, team would fly out, and the other team would be like a QRF or something. And right, and he he had made a joke as they were walking out the door, saying like something like along the lines of like you know don't get shot out the sky or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah. when they got the call, he was like, oh shit, and you know they had to gear up and and rush over, but yeah. Yeah, spin up the QRF, quick reaction force, and go fetch them. Man, so, okay, so, um, so you've done a couple more deployments. Um, you know, at this point, you're, are, are you a, a sort of senior guy at the, uh, you know, at the, the ground level? Yes, 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 sir. Yeah, crusty old W-4. okay so you know one of the things that the army or in particular you know the spec ops side of the house is is known for being good at planning um and and you talked about it and you guys are drilling it you know night in night out for for months yep um so when you're you know and, and you're working in in uh in a task force with different units, spec ops units and stuff. And, um, uh, you know, you, you guys are planning ops, uh, you know, uh, national and strategic objectives. Um, and so can you talk about any, any sort of significant, uh, you know, actions that were taken, you know, l- later on in your career? Oh, there were, well, they're all significant, but again, the focus was on counterterrorism, you know, finding Al Qaeda worldwide and, you know, the hunt for the hunt for bin Laden. And of course, we got Saddam on December 12, 2003. 
And but yeah, it was. I mean, the the, the war was in or the battle was in Iraq and Afghanistan because we were there. So Al Qaeda came to us to fight. Right. That makes sense. Um, but back, yeah, you mentioned planning, and I'll, I'll just tell you this, man. The 160th, they are by far the best planners in the world. And our, I don't know if you know what our standard is, but it's plus or minus 30 seconds on target. So when we're given, you know, a TOT, a time on target or an HR, you know, that the ground force says, hey, I got to have you guys here at 0100. Well, we're, we're landing and or shooting at 0100 plus or minus 30 seconds. And that's the detail that the 160th, that's how we plan and the detail we plan too, because we have to, man. And if you can't meet that standard, then you're told to leave. Hmm. That, and that standard is used with a map, a compass, and a clock. <laughs> no, no GPS, no electronics. I mean, you just, and it happened to me. I mean, I was in lead and there for a couple months. None of the, uh, none of our GPS would work. And we've got, you know, we got it, but it's used to back up our master of navigation. Mm. And uh, yeah, man, I was, you know, time distance heading was called aviation. So yeah, you start the clock at a checkpoint and fly to the next checkpoint, restart the clock and get a heading. And yeah, but plus or minus 30 seconds. That's the standard. And the ground force knows that and they, they trust us and know we'll get them, get them to the target on time because lives depend on that. And all of your, Deployments and actual combat, that's alongside Rangers, Delta, or yeah. Special Forces, SEALs? No, I I didn't work with any SF guys or SEALs. It was all, mm, okay. you know, the I guess the, the country's task force is, you know, us Rangers and Delta, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, so what year was your last uh, combat deployment? 2008. Got home in January. And were you at uh, 20 years by this point or over 20 years or? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of 22. But the boss, he walked up to me one day there at Fort Campbell and he put his arm around me and looked me in the eye and he said, Gregory. I was like, Oh man, you know, cause when very, your mama used your full name and your middle name, you're like, uh Oh, <laughs> Gregory Scott. <laughs> and, and I just kind of was like, Oh man, here it comes. You know? And he looked at me and he goes, I think it's time to go home. I said, yes, sir. You're right. And I dropped my mm. papers the next day. Wow. Never back. Yeah. And he says, you've been all you could be. <laughs> I said, yes, right. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Colonel Mangum at the time, he's 
He retired as a three-star. Great leaders, though. I was fortunate. Okay, so it wasn't like a, um, you weren't doing like instructor time or anything like after your last deployment, you were you were basically done at that point? Yeah, there's, there's when we came home, the train didn't stop. <laughs> no, we were off training rangers or training our own guys or, you know, it's not like we go, all right, we get to go home and sit by the pool and sit martinis. No, right. no, man. We, you know, we have a real world strategic mission and there's war going on all over the world. And, but yeah, man, you just, you just don't stop. It, it was, I mean, I was tired. I was, I was just tired and I was, my body was busted up. And I mean, I, it took years after that to, I mean, I still had surgeries up until, and I knew it, you know, but up until like, well, I had my knee. My last knee was replaced in 2021. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so then, uh, so you you retire, uh, you get out. Uh, do you did you have an idea of what you wanted to do, or or how yeah. what was that like? Yeah, I had a plan. I had the the family, and and um, I'd moved them to back to Texas. I found some land, about 10 acres, and, you know, we're going to build a house. And, but they, I moved them back in December so the girls could get into school, at least have a half a year. And I just kind of, you know, bachelor, bachelored it, and I wasn't around anyway. So, uh, yeah, they moved to Texas. And then I followed. I built a house, and, you know, we had saved money and, had a plan and um, I was doing some work for Viking Tactics, Sergeant Major Kyle Lamb. I was mm. instructing for him. And yeah, I just, I enjoy instructing and being on the range and, you know, showing guys how to live if something bad happens. So we, we take those lessons learned and pass them along. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I did. Did some consulting. I uh, worked for Dylan Arrow for about a year to help them out. They had they had some of their guys got called up to active duty and went out there and lived in Scottsdale for a year. But hey, I get to fly with a little bird and shoot miniguns a couple times a week. So can't beat that as a civilian. And nice. then I went to uh, family wanted me home more, so I went and Took a position with a, a large oil and gas company, and yeah, got laid off after two and a half years with them, and went back to doing my own thing. Yeah, training, uh, consult, in oil and gas, safety, security. Oh goodness, emergency response. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, being in a helicopter crash, obviously you're banged up. You, you, you had a bunch of surgeries, um, knees, you know, everything. But, uh, you know, the, your, your head obviously gets banged up from that as well. Oh, yeah. Um, TBI. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, 
were you doing anything, you know, talking about the TBI or, you know, getting your head looked at? Like, what was that like? Yeah, they and they, you know, the unit, they're like, crap, man, you know, what do we do with Craig? <laughs> so, I mean, they sent me to specialists all over the country and, you know, trying to help me. And 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 they, you know, that P word that everybody uses now that I hate it. That PTS, well, mm-hmm. they told me I had it or, or shrink did. And I'm like, dude, I, I'm good, man. I don't know. Whatever. And uh, and, I, and I've been on somewhat of a crusade for several years. But it's and I've had several of my buddies, close, close friends take their life. And mm-hmm. I've I've tell everyone it needs to be called PCS because. Anyone can have a traumatic experience, okay? And that's what PTSD is, post-traumatic stress disorder. So a rape victim, a car wreck victim, a person who's had child abuse, they can suffer from, you know, PTS. But I say it's PCS, it's post-combat stress. Mm. That's what we get, if that makes any sense. And I've had yeah. thousands of people. Agree with me. And I, I had, I've spoken all over the country at conferences or people ask me to come speak and, and I even wrote a book about it. <laughs> so yeah, about a year and a half ago. And, and I talk about my dark times, my demons. Yeah, man, it sucks, but you know what? You just got to man up and deal with it. Um, you know, prayer is my, my greatest weapon against all this stuff. And, you know, I'm just, I'm a devout Christian man and always have been. So, yeah, it was, they sent me all over and, and I, and I had some issues. I did, but we as men, especially type A's, our docs called us a plus type personalities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, okay, whatever, man. And, uh, but I just kept pushing it down, pushing it down. It was classic, you know, PTS, classic. And then just, I never will forget, I was going in, I went in for my flight physical June of 2005 and just melted down, man. Yeah, just had a meltdown. And Doc, he understood and walked me across the street there at the compound. We, we have two full, well, then we had two full-time psychiatrists. And went and talked to Doc. Yeah. And been seeing, I saw a therapist from 2005 until 2018. Yeah. And it helps. And if you're listening to this, I'm telling you, fellas, ladies, go talk to someone. Go talk to someone. I didn't. And it really, it just, it almost destroyed me. I almost took my life in 2015. Yeah. Sure did. But it was my ex had left in spring of 15. Then my best friend shot himself on 26 June 2015. And it was man. just, man, the world was just tumbling in, crashing in around me. And I was, you know, I was a single father with two kids at home, one of them pregnant. <laughs> and I was like, Lord, just give me strength and courage, man, please. You know, you just. Mm. I just took one day at a time and, 
yeah, fell off into alcohol and prescription drugs. And I got all the t-shirts, man, been there, done that. And, you know, and then I, I, God spoke to me the night I was going to take my life. And man, I've, I've been on fire ever since I, I try to give back to the veteran community and help young vets, old vets. It doesn't matter, man. We just, you know, we we're in this, we're in this war together post combat. And that's where I always come back to. I've even had some pretty well-known psychiatrists and psychologists say, you know what, Greg, it, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying, but the stigma has been put out there on veterans. Right. And, and it's, it hurts veterans because you take a young guy that, you know, went and did his four or six years as a ranger or SF guy or as a truck driver or infantryman or medic, or whatever. Well, oh man, you got PTS, <laughs> you know, you're going to go postal if I right. hire you. So I don't want the, you know, take that chance. I don't want that liability when it's, it's just, man, it's BS. It's, it really is it's sad, but there's tons of information out there now. Back when I was hurt, you know, they, they just didn't know a whole lot. <clears throat> they just didn't know much. And uh, what goes on in her brain, especially, you know, ground guys or, or even gun guy, you know, like I'm a gun pilot and doggone, man, the, the minigun and the gal 19 or what, 20 inches from my head that I'm <laughs> shooting 150 times a night. Right. You know, ground guys doing breaches or, you know, mortar lands close or whatever the case. But, man, it it affects our brains and they're they're on it now. I pray. But I think they are. You know, they're they're and it it starts with leadership. I mean, the leaders have to take charge and, you know, make sure their people are safe. That's the bottom line. I mean. We're soldiers and we're professional warriors and we got to do our jobs. But, you know, I, I think there are things that the leadership and that soldiers can do to reduce that risk. Yes, sir. So was your, your friend who killed himself, was he in the service as well? Yeah, he was in Delta. Okay, yeah. wow. Master Sergeant Leon Hansen. And that, again, I go back to you know, these men are, they're at the tip of the spear. They're at the height of their career as a professional soldier, but yet highly educated, highly intelligent, but they do this. And I'm just, ugh, I just can't grasp it, man. I just, they lose hope. That's what I know. They lose hope. And that's why I, I talk to a vet every day. And all I do is say, hey, man, I love you. And that's all you got to do. And keep that door open, you know, somebody, man, I get calls two, three o'clock in the morning. Hey, man, I'm just don't know. I was like, nah, I, I, you know, let's talk about this. So, but yeah, go get help. You're not, it doesn't make you any less a man or a right. lawyer or anything else. It's just, dude, it's just, yeah, it's part of it. It's God's path. And, you know, and I tell folks that young, younger guys, young warriors, I'm like, hey, man, when, when the good Lord was knitting us in our mother's womb, our path was already laid out and ours was one of a warrior. So stop pissing and moaning and whining and groaning and complaining. Go, go get some help, man. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I, and I don't mean to leave out females, but we, you know, that that was one of the scariest parts of civilian life. I went for my interview to this oil and gas company, and they, the HR lady said, well, Mr. Cooker, what's your biggest fear? And I said, I looked her right now, and I said, working with females. And there were a couple of chuckles. <laughs> and I said, ma'am, I've never worked with a female in my life. There, mm. You know, there weren't any in the infantry. There weren't any in special operations. And I'm scared to death. And she's like, it'll be okay. <laughs> so, yeah. But I got through it. And they hired me. And, yeah, I did great things for them. So, yeah, and I wrote the book, um, Death Waits in the Dark. I don't have any more softbacks left, but I'm getting it re-edited and but there's Kindle and and uh, Audible on nice. Amazon. Yeah, but it, the new book should be out this spring. So just do not despair. <laughs> Actually, it, just, are you adding to it or just it's going to be? No, re-edited? no, it, just, it needed edited, and I I asked myself this question. I said, could I hand this book to my grandchildren to read? And the answer was no. Mm. There's a lot of acronyms, and you know, it, it's my fault. I mean, I just thought, hey, man, everybody knows what a skiff is or a FOB, (laughs) you know, and that's and I I had a lot of constructive criticism. So I acted on that. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, yeah, there'll be a a second edition out. I've got I hired a staff of professionals. They're working on it. I've got the first 10 chapters back and they are spot on, man. It's yeah, I'm extremely happy with their work and what they've done and yeah so i'm excited about it for sure but yeah that's that's good and i you know and i my buddies tell me i'm crazy but i i made the decision i says i'm going to donate 100 percent of the proceeds from this book to help i donate to 501c3 nonprofits that support veterans first responders and their families and we've donated over $50,000 today. That's amazing. For the book sales. Yeah, man, I was just blessed. Yeah, I prayed about it. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. My buddies are like, dude, are you crazy? I was like, no, no. It just, yeah, just what I needed to do. Yeah, that's Four. amazing. Yeah, that's cool. I read an article the other day. It talked about first-time writers self-publish book when they publish a book and the question was how many books does that person sell with this these professionals editors writers publishers they said the average is they're lucky to sell a hundred copies of their first book that they self-publish and we've sold over eight thousand copies (laughs) wow that's amazing (laughs) yeah yeah, we, we put that rumor to bed. But yeah, I'm I'm just blessed and I'm yeah, man, it, it's I'm very happy with that. And and we get to help a bunch of folks. Yes, sir. That's why yeah, I, that's phenomenal. Did Blades for Brothers. I just I just want to help other vets, man. That's the path for me. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's important stuff and um a, a friend of mine, he was a uh a Navy Sark. So for uh-huh. the audience, that's like the, you know, very high level special operations medic, essentially. Yeah. And um, 
he had attached to the uh, a force reconnaissance company in Morsak, and he'd been in combat in Afghanistan. And wow. Um, and you know the the medics are usually smart guys, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, they're great docs, man. They yeah. are. Yeah. And um, and I'd done two podcasts with him. Uh, talking about well, the first one was kind of just about his story, and then the second one was focused on TBI, and and he'd done a, lot, a ton of research on it, and you know he, uh, so he, he explained it so, sort of scientifically, and sure, and we did all this stuff, of, you know, speaking about uh, things you can do to sort of help yourself and fix yourself, and uh, he ended up killing himself in August last year. Oh no, man. Yeah, and it was just, it sucked. And, like, when I yeah. found out, I was just, like, so confused. I was like, what the fuck? Because he, he was, like, one of those guys that's always positive and, and saying, you know, sp- you know, speak to your brothers and, you know, that kind of thing. And it just really bummed me out, you know? Oh, yeah, man. And, the you know, and it's, and I tell, <clears throat> sorry, I tell people, gosh, they don't even realize what they've left and what they yeah. did. To the people that love them, their families, their kids, their grandkids. Mm-hmm. I'm like, gosh, man. And I got so, so angry. I cussed God when I got the phone call about Leon. Actually, his son-in-law called me. And I, just, I, I looked at my phone. I saw the number. And Seth was a ranger in 275. And that's where Leon was living out there to be close to his daughter and his grandbabies. And I just, oh man, I just got chills. I just knew. I was like, man, this is not going to be good. Amen. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah. But they're in a better place and they're not feeling any pain and they're watching over us. Yeah, I know that. We'll all, we'll all link up again one day for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yes. But man, it's your hate. It just, it's hard to lose your people like that. Yeah. 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 It, it's just crazy, man. And, and, um, and, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I like that you're speaking so openly about your experiences. Cause I, I feel like, you know, someone listening, um, you know, maybe they've never heard, uh, another guy's experiences. So, sure. you know, sure. potentially that could save their lives or, or put them on the path to saving themselves, you know? So, yes, sir. And I, I've got to tell you this, too. I, I've lost track and count, but I've had hundreds of notes, emails, texts, letters from people that, and this is veterans, their children, their spouses, and their family, mom and dad. Then, mm. hey, I read your book. It saved my life. That's wow. amazing. That's powerful. And Sergeant Major Lamb, Kyle Lamb, good good friend of mine. Well, he I asked he wrote the intro to the book and mm, okay. manuscript. He read it and he called me and he says, "Gravy, this is gonna save lives, brother." Amazing. Good. It did. It has, and will continue to. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's that's all good stuff, man. It's it's, it's real positive. And um, when we we had spoken, uh, oh, it was the last week. Yes, sir. Um, talking about like the blades for brothers and um, how the 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 f- actual process of creating the blade can help like fix your brain and and yeah. uh, the doctor talked to you about that and you know that's pretty interesting stuff right there. Yes, sir. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it takes it takes a tribe, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it does. It just it takes a tribe. Absolutely. But yeah, just you know, tell your brothers and sisters you love them, man. And that's sometimes that's that's all that human being needed to hear at that time, at that day, or week, or month, or whatever the case. So yeah, we got to stick together, take care of each other. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Yeah, so um. Yeah, it was uh, it was great to do this, man. Um, yeah, yeah, it, this was fun. I just looked at my watch; it's five eight. It's like over two hours. It seems like. Yeah, five, yeah, yeah. We're just over two. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Though. I, I truly appreciate you reaching out, and it's been an honor to meet you and talk with you. And yeah, we'll, we'll do more if you want. Yeah, for sure, man. This was fun, and um, yes, sir. Uh, you know, I think people are gonna appreciate hearing from you and and uh you know people who are in the service or first responders who are going through some things i I think it'll be beneficial for them in particular so yes um you know i'm happy we did this and uh you know i want to thank you for your service as well oh my man it was an honor and pleasure and i wish i could have stayed healthy because i'd probably stay longer (laughs) yeah yes sir
Thank mm-hmm. you.